The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Well, why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to... The book of Hebrews, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, as we think about uh, this week and uh, just giving thanks and praise uh, to our God. As Christians, uh, we know that we're convinced that uh, we live in a world that's completely underneath the sovereign control of an all-knowing, all-wise, and all-good, and all-powerful creator. He rolls over us as Psalm 115. Uh, Verse 3 says, he does whatever he pleases, uh, but the sovereign control of our creator does not mean that life for the Christian now becomes easy. I remember a a brother uh, sharing a story with me about what not to do when you're sharing the gospel. Uh, He was sharing the gospel with uh, this one individual, and uh, this individual started raising objections, you know, but for every objection uh, that this person would raise, this brother would say, oh, don't worry about it, you know, Jesus will fix that. Jesus will fix it. So he's talking to this guy, and he said, you know, I, I can't think about God right now. You know, I'm trying to find a job. And he says, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Jesus will fix it. And then the guy brought up his uh, relationship with his wife and how they were struggling in their marriage. And my friend would respond, you know, don't worry. Jesus will fix that. And then he talked about some of the struggles that he was having with his health. And my friend responded, don't worry about that. Jesus will fix that too. And uh, it's like it didn't matter what he said. It's Jesus will fix that. Jesus will fix that. Uh, you know, he had to fix it, Jesus. And, uh, you know, that old song, you know, wondering how you're going to pay your rent when all your money's spent. Say so you got a light bill due and you got a gas bill too, right? <laughs> you got all these. But, hey, Jesus will fix it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about that gas bill. Jesus will fix that. And the guy prayed with him just to get him off of his back. You know, it's just like, you know, whatever you say, you know, Jesus will fix that, Jesus will fix that. You know, okay, okay, I'll just, I'll just pray. And he never saw the guy again. Never saw the guy again. The Lord can be trusted with all of these things, all the things, the things that we've mentioned. But his answers may come to us in a way that we're not necessarily anticipating, right? You know, because some people, they trust in the Lord, and instead of their marriage getting better, their marriage gets worse. Some people, they come to the Lord, and instead of, you know, getting that promotion at work, they're actually let go from work. You know, there, there are some people who come to the Lord and instead of being immediately healed, they struggle with chronic disease and pain for the rest of their life. Uh, is the problem with Jesus? <laughs> or is our problem with our understanding of what we come to Jesus for? In fact, you might not have known trouble until you became a Christian. As an unbeliever, you might have had it easy. But now it seems like trouble has your name on it. You know, it's got your address. It's already been, uh, it's got the, the postage on it. It's already been delivered. And living for the Lord comes with some consequences attached to it. And as we look back over this past year, I know that for, for many of you who are members here at Baltimore Bible Church, that uh, this past year has been filled with a lot of challenges. And I've talked with many of you who've had some unexpected decisions to make about your jobs, significant trials in your family long-term illnesses that you've had to deal with, Uh, even some of you uh, dealing with the loss of a loved one. Some of you have even faced a level of persecution, you know, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And here we are, we're approaching another Thanksgiving season, and you might be wondering, you know, how do I give God thanks for some of the trials that I've experienced in this past year? You know, I know that Scripture says, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you, in Christ Jesus. I know I'm supposed to give thanks for, for everything, but, but this past year has been, been pretty tough, and I'm struggling, and I need some help. And uh, there are a number of passages that we could turn to to think through the, the Lord's involvement in our trials, but one place that we could turn to is the book of Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, just to get us into the context of the, the book, uh, why don't you turn to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. Hebrews is a book which focuses primarily on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. One author said that the book of Romans reveals the necessity of the Christian faith, and the book of Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. Uh, Hebrews has been called the the book of better things by some, 
Uh, Because everywhere you turn in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is always better. He offers a better hope, a better covenant, a better ministry, better promises, better blood, better tabernacle, better sacrifice, better possessions, a better country, a better resurrection. In chapter 11, verse 40, it puts it this way. God has provided something better for us. We have something better in Jesus Christ. So the idea that you should walk away from this book with is that if I have Christ, I have the best. Because it doesn't matter what you compare Jesus to, he's always going to come out on top. And that would have been particularly important for the original recipients of this book uh, who were tempted to throw in the towel and quit because they had come to Christ or had supposedly professed their faith in Jesus Christ and things didn't seem to be getting better. And the primary recipients of this letter, they were Jewish people who came out of Judaism in order to follow Christ. But they soon discovered that following Jesus didn't guarantee their best life now. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the author lets us know what they already endured. Look at chapter 10, starting at verse 32. It says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this group had faced a lot. The pain of great conflict, of suffering, persecution, the shame of being made a public spectacle, reproaches and tribulation. They experienced the the ridicule of aligning themselves with Jesus Christ, ridicule for that sympathizing with the prisoners who were taken for Jesus Christ. People went to jail because they believed in Jesus. A number of them lost their property, lost their possessions. And now all of a sudden, these uh, Jewish believers or the people who had attached themselves to Christ are looking ahead into the future and saying, is this really what I want to continue to attach myself to? This this is more than what I I signed up for. I don't know if I want to keep going down this road. They're like the, the children of Israel in the wilderness who are on the journey to the promised land, but now they're starting to have second thoughts about the menu in Egypt. You know, all we got out here in this wilderness is this manna. You know, sick of this manna. Started thinking about the fish and the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. You know, all that stuff that we had back in Egypt, don't you remember that? You know, they just conveniently forgot the slavery that was back in Egypt. But now they're tempted to go back. Tempted to go back. There was a man by the name of uh, John Bunyan, who was an English minister, preacher in the 17th century. He's most famous for a book that he wrote uh, by the name of The Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, for more than 200 years after its publication, the book ranked just behind the King James Bible as the most common and most important book in evangelical households. Uh, the King James Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, and, the, and Fox's Book of Martyrs were like kind of found in every household where they could read. It was found in every church. And the Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory where the characters and the objects in the story represent the realities that we face in life. And in John Bunyan's book, he features a a character named Pliable, an individual who was easily influenced and who who lacked a true spiritual commitment to Jesus Christ. But he looked like he was following. And he tries to follow Christian on the path to the celestial city, but he soon realizes that the road to Christianity is not an easy one. And they both fell into a swamp. And listen to how Pliable responded. He says this, Is this the happiness you told me of all this while? If we have such ill fortune at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two, got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. And so away he went, and Christian saw him no more. Pliable didn't have the heart to continue. He didn't have the endurance of faith. He shrunk back. But that's not true of the genuine believer. And I'm going to propose something that what you should be thanking God for, for this year, even if you've been through a difficult year, a trying year, one of the things that you can give God praise for, even while you're under affliction, 
even though the external circumstances haven't changed, you can thank God that your trials have not turned you away from God. You can give God thanks for that. You can give God thanks that I haven't returned back to Egypt yet. That God has a hold on me. And I'm persevering in my faith. You can give God thanks that you're still holding on to him. What does Hebrews 10.38 say? If you shrink back, my soul has no pleasure. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's these stern warnings against drifting away, going astray, falling through, falling away, shrinking back, coming short. All signs of a false profession of faith. But rather, what we're called to do is to hold fast, to enter in, to press on, to draw near, to endure. And a true believer can say that that's me. That, that I'm still holding on. And that Christ is still holding on to me. And that even though things might seem like they're falling apart, that I'm persevering in my faith. The true believer can never say I've fallen and I can't get up, right? <laughs> Hebrews 12 reminds us of some of the means that God uses to help us endure. And we can thank God for each of these faithful reminders to our endurance. Uh, let's take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Go ahead and read the the passage here for us. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And, have, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, we pray that your word would speak to us, Lord, even as we heard earlier today, that your, your word has a word for us today, that it is a current word, that it's a relevant word. And Father, I pray that we would receive this, and Father, that you would... Uh, Use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we're reminded of in in Hebrews as we're encouraged to endure, encouraged to endure, to persevere, number one, we're encouraged to consider our surroundings. Consider your surroundings. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. We have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And what is this cloud of witnesses? What what is this cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about? The first word in verse 1 gives us a clue about who the witnesses are. The first word is therefore. And that therefore is a conjunction that draws a conclusion from the preceding context. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with Bible study, you might have heard, if you see a therefore, you have to see what the therefore is there for, right? And the therefore is there to point us back to the preceding context. What happened in the preceding context? What happened before this? Hebrews chapter 11, which is what many would call the hall of faith, which is just a long list of faithful Old Testament saints who had an assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. They lived by faith, they died in faith, and many of them not even receiving the promises that they believed in. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And in Hebrews chapter 11, you find a long list of men, men like Abel, in verse 4, who, who died because his deeds were righteous and his brothers were evil. 
But Abel died without seeing the reward for his righteousness. He offered a, a, a sacrifice and died not seeing the reward for that sacrifice. But he believed in God. Men like Enoch in verse 5, who honored the Lord in the midst of his generation, where, where wickedness, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of their thoughts was only evil continually. That's the kind of place that Enoch dwelled in. And he was taken up before he saw a change to any of that. He didn't see the, the end of that. Men like Noah in verse 7 who built the ark without seeing the rain. <laughs> and after surviving the flood, he entered into a new world and he was told that it would never flood again. And then was given the command to multiply and fill the earth. And Noah died without seeing all the fruition of those promises. And then you have one of the greatest examples of faith, Abraham. A man who left for a land that he didn't know. Was promised kids that he didn't have. From a wife who never conceived. But he trusted God and died in faith only seeing tokens of what was to come. He was promised that he would have an inheritance like this. Look at the, look at the stars, Abraham. As many, as many as are the stars, so will your descendants be. And he didn't even have one child. Only had the, the one and the one by, you know, illegitimately. But here are these bygone saints. They, they died without receiving all of the promises that they were given. But these bygone saints become our cloud of witnesses that surround us. And the, the word cloud was just one of the ways that the, uh, the Greeks would speak of a, a large host of people. You know, people so compact together uh, that they just seem like, a, like, a, like in, indistinguishable from one another. You know, sometimes we talk about people like a great, clou- uh, great crowd of people. We say, it's like a sea of people or like a flood of people. You know, the Greeks would speak about a cloud of people. You know, they're, they're just all kind of bunched up together. And these people that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, and there's many more that could have been mentioned, you know, as the, the writer says, you know, time would fail me if I were to tell about everybody. But he says these people died in faith and they become this cloud of witnesses. And what does it mean that they're, they're witnesses? Does it mean that they're, they're watching over us? You know, like the angels watching over me, my Lord. You know, are they the, the saints that are watching over, over us? Are they observing what's happening on earth? Uh, the answer is no. We don't have any indication from Scripture that, that people in heaven are watching what takes place on earth. And if you take, pay attention to what happens in Hebrews chapter 11, are they giving witness to us or giving witness to God? <laughs> They're giving witness to the Lord. You know, so this is this great cloud of witnesses who's bearing witness to God, and they become reminders of God's faithfulness even to us. Just like Joshua stacked up the, the 12 stones as a memorial to remember what the Lord had done there, in the same way these cloud of witnesses become our memorial. It's like the, the retired jerseys that, that hang around a, a basketball uh, court. You know, they're, they're the reminders of those who came before you. And these saints become the encouragement to us to run our race with endurance. And we can thank God for that encouragement. Because the Christian life is a long-distance race. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And those who persevere to the end are those who will be saved, those who finish the race. And it can become discouraging to us when we're right in the middle of it, right in the thick of it. Because honestly, sometimes we don't know, how can I keep up with this? You know, for some of you, the pressures are constant. And you're wondering, how can I endure this any longer? The word endurance is the, the Greek word hupomone. And it, it's, it's a, a hupomeno uh, is the, the, the verb. And it's, it's, a, it's from two words, hupa, which means under, and meno, which means to remain or to stay. It means to stay under, to remain under. And some of you have remained under the pressure. And the idea is that instead of looking at you know, freedom and escape, that you look to, to bear up under that. You know, when I, when I used to, to run, I remember I was tempted to, to stop, not because I was, I was tired, but because of the pain. <laughs> you know, pain in places that you, you didn't even realize that, you know, you're going to feel pain. It's like shin splints. What in the world is that? You know, you didn't know until you started running. But we have to be willing to make those sacrifices if we're going to endure. Lay aside the encumbrances. Lay aside the weights. Bear up under the pain. We're not carrying anything extra for this race, which is what it goes on to talk about, to lay aside the encumbrances. You know, it's a word for, for laying aside the bulk. You know, we're, we're not carrying anything extra. The Roman and, and Greek uh, runners would put themselves on a strict diet to cut back, to get down to an optimal weight. And when they would run, they would free themselves from anything that was too bulky to, to run in. They didn't want anything to prevent their movement. And uh, we're to do the same thing, to lay aside the weight. What's the weight? You know, maybe it's social media. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's some pastime that's become an obsession for you. 
and it's getting in your way of pursuing after Christ, you lay that down. What's slowing you down in your pursuit of Jesus Christ? And then there's the sins which entangle us. The word for entangles or clings to is a word that literally means to encircle. It's like the the python that wraps itself around you and doesn't allow you to go anywhere. It chokes the life out of you. That's what sin will do. Sin will choke the life out of you, wrap its way around you and take you down. So the book of Hebrews says, lay it aside. Don't don't take it along for the ride. I remember uh, our brother Mac in our, our small group, he says, you know, that he heard that, you know, uh, never let sin get in the car because he'll want to take the wheel. <laughs> you know, he'll want to, want to do the driving. He doesn't just want to ride. He wants to do the driving. And the question becomes, how long can I discipline myself to do that? To, to bear up under this pressure without sinning, without laying it down. How can I say no to sin? How can I lay aside the weights? How can I turn from temptation, persevere, and even in the face of pain? Hebrews says, consider your surroundings. Look at, look at the great cloud of Witnesses, the men and women of faith who are the memorial stones who show you that the God has already been faithful in the past and he can be faithful in the present right now with you. He can be faithful. You can trust in him. He's trustworthy. And I thank God for the many examples before me. The cloud of witnesses in scripture. As you look throughout church history, the examples that you find there. I can personally thank God for my pastor and friend, Tom Leake. You know, a pastor of, who was the pastor, founding pastor of Hope Bible Church, who was faithful right up until the end of his life, who's joined that cloud of, of witnesses. We can thank God for those who have been faithful in the past. We consider our surroundings. Number two, consider your Savior. Consider your Savior. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What are we supposed to do to bring, what are we to bring to mind when we're tempted to crumble underneath the pressure, pressure under the great conflict of suffering? You are to think on, dwell on the Savior. This is similar to what we've been studying in, in 1 Peter. We're to look at the example of Jesus Christ. In verse 2 it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus Literally, it means to to look away from everything else. Just like an athlete would keep his eyes fixed on the finish line, the believer is to keep his attention fixed on Jesus. One lexicon says, giving attention to, this word for fixing means giving attention to one thing to the exclusion of all else. To look with undivided attention, to fix one's eyes. And while we can find encouragement in believers of the past, our faith does not rest on the believers of the past, right? As wonderful as their examples might be, we need to rest and fully trust in Jesus Christ alone. He is our leader. He's what our faith is founded upon. As one author says, in him all the promises of God find their fulfillment, and apart from him, fallen mankind would have no ground or object of faith. So in that sense, he is the author of our faith. You know, like the song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When Hebrews says that he's the author and perfecter of faith, it's just another way to say that we are complete in him. We find everything that we need in Christ. Revelation 22, 13, it says that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That, 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 uh, uh, the, the Greek words for beginning and end are actually similar words to what we find here uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. It comes from the same root. When it says he's the author and perfecter, uses the same root as the beginning and the end. We, we find everything. He's the beginning, the end, and everything in between, right? Our faith rests on Jesus Christ. But Hebrews 12 also indicates that Jesus becomes our chief example. Uh, the, the word author also uh, can be used to indicate a, a, a captain, a leader, the one who is our pioneer. And Jesus leads the way for us to follow his example. He suffered hostility against himself for the joy that was set before him. We're to run our race with endurance looking to Jesus who also endured. Jesus endured. We are to endure. He ran his race to the very end. He finished, crossed the line at the cross. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In Luke 18, 31, he, he says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. I'm going to the finish line. And he accomplished this for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? That joy was to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption to bring many sons to glory. That was the joy. 
It was the father's plan to give to the son the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2 speaks about that. And the son would provide the redemption by bearing their iniquities upon himself and then leading them to glory. That was the father's plan. And Jesus was committed to fulfilling that plan. But the only way that could be accomplished was through his sufferings. He had to endure the sufferings to get to that goal. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, Jesus is not just our our Savior because of his sufferings. He is our Savior because of his sufferings, but he's also our example because of his sufferings. He's our Savior because of his sufferings, and he's our example because of his sufferings. He endured. He endured the shame of the cross for our redemption. Jesus was spit on, struck, beat with fists when he stood before the high priest. Then on the following night, he he was scorned, treated with contempt, The soldiers mocked him, dressed him up, put on a robe, spit in his face, slapped him, pulled the hair out of his beard. He was beaten mercilessly at the command of of Pilate. Soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, slapped him in his face. Pilate came out and says, behold, I, I find no guilt in him. Are you kidding me? That's how you treat the innocent? That's how you treat the innocent. But Jesus went through that shame And even though no guilt could be found in him, the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Humiliation, the the lowest form of punishment was the cross. Lowest form of capital punishment reserved for the, the slaves, for criminals, public humiliation. And Jesus endured it all for the sake of following the will of his father and for the sake of bringing in the elect. That's what Jesus did. He endured But it didn't end with just the the shame. As we read further, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The place of blessing, the place of honor, the place of authority. So when we speak about Jesus being at the right hand of God, we're speaking about also his equality with God, elevated to the highest place. And verse 3 says, consider him. (laughs) Consider him. When you think about what you're going through, think about Jesus. The, The word consider means to seriously consider. It's an arist imperative, which means you take it as a, as a whole. It's an action as a whole. You're, you're to think about him. Place your mind there and keep it there. Consider where he is now and consider what he's been through. And to think about that person, that one, that's your example. When, when you're going through difficulty in your life, he's your, your comfort even in affliction. Are you thankful for that? Do you understand that as difficult as things may get here on earth, that your destination is secure because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross? That where he is, there you will be also? That Jesus has done this for your sake? That he's blazed the trail ahead of us? And he's made sure that he will bring many sons to glory? That he will not leave us, but he will come for us? And he doesn't just begin our faith, but he makes sure that he brings it all the way to completion? He's the beginning And the end, right? He's the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. He'll bring you all the way to completion. He who has begun a good work in you will do what? He'll accomplish it. He'll finish it. This work will be finished. Do you think, God, that you will persevere because Jesus persevered? It's a powerful thought. Number three, don't only consider your surroundings and consider your Savior. Consider your suffering. Consider your suffering. Look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And the question that's asked here is, is, have you really considered the kind of suffering you're called to endure? To what extent has your confrontation with sin really gone? You know, trying to make sure that you're, you're enduring, that you're being faithful to the Lord. To, to what point has that taken you? Have you resisted to the point of shedding your blood for it? In other words, it's, it's not minimizing my struggle but it's trying to present it in a a realistic light. And the question is, in your struggle, have you reached the point that you've had to shed your blood? The Hebrew Christians that are being addressed here hadn't yet been called to seal their testimony with their blood. They hadn't yet joined that company of believers that's in having that great cloud of witnesses. I mean, that's a privileged company to be a part of, but they hadn't yet joined that company. And it's because God knows to what extent we're ready for a trial. God, God, God limits our trials. 
There was a, a story of a, a pastor named Richard Wormbrand suffered torture in communist Romania. Listen to the story that he tells about a fellow pastor. He said a pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into a cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep but had to defend himself all the time. If he rested for a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brothers, but he resisted steadfastly. In the end, they brought his 14-year-old son and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bore it as long as he could. When he could not stand it anymore, he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating. The son answered, Father, don't give me the injustice of having a traitor for a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words of Jesus and my fatherland. The communists, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death with blood spattered over the walls of the cell, but he died praising God. (laughs) God knows what you can endure. You, You haven't yet come to this point. You haven't come to this point yet. We haven't been asked to make that kind of sacrifice. And only God knows what our limitations are. But he's made sure that whatever we have to endure, that our faith will stand. The kind of faith that we've been given as believers is indestructible faith. Indestructible faith. And God has made sure that our faith will stand. Number four, consider your sonship. Consider your sonship. Look at verses 5 to 10. I'll just start at verse 5. It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? And here we're introduced to the concept of affliction as a means of God's fatherly discipline for his children. And it's important that we understand what Hebrews is saying in its context, because God is not ordaining that the Hebrew Christians should suffer affliction because they're somehow worse than any other Christians. The the Hebrew believers weren't suffering for doing what was wrong. They were suffering for, for trying to stand and do what was right. They're actually in danger of of suffering as a result of doing the right thing, identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Hebrews chapter 10 talked about. We read it earlier. So we shouldn't conclude that evil Christians suffer affliction and obedient Christians escape affliction. You know, that's word of faith theology. That's not Christianity. There's no way for us to determine all the specific reasons that God decrees for suffering to happen in our lives, affliction, pressure to come into our lives. And many of you, like I said, even in this past year, experienced some of that. The secret things belong to the Lord, Scripture says, but there are some things that we can say about suffering in general. Some things about suffering in general that I think are are helpful. Number one, what does suffering do? It weans us from the world and causes us to long for heaven. Weans us from the world and causes us to long for heaven. It's a reminder that the world is not our home. (laughs) We're exiles. We're strangers. We don't belong here. (laughs) Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we actually eagerly wait for him even more when we understand that this place doesn't fit us. We, We don't belong down here. This is not my home. I want to go home. Suffering has a way of of weaning us from the world, reminding us that this this isn't it. You don't belong here. This isn't the final place. Weans us from the world. I remember uh, when I was a younger believer, it's like, you know, Lord, you know, I do believe in the rapture, but can you wait until I get married and have some kids? And, you know, you know, had all these ideas of what I wanted to do first. I love my wife and I love my kids, but uh, I know that home is better, right? Heaven is better. Like, like Paul said, I, I, I'm in the straight between the two and heaven is far better. To be with Christ is far better. And I know my wife would say the same thing, right? (laughs) It's far better. Number two, it makes the promises of God more precious to us. When Jesus says, I've overcome the world, does that mean as much to you when you think that you're on top of the world? (laughs) John 14, verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Is that, is that promise as precious to you when you think that the world has all these things to offer to you? It's like, like suffering kind of rips you away from that. 
It makes the, the, the promises of God precious. It causes us to draw near to the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I mean, suffering has a way of driving us to the Lord, driving us to prayer. You know, in 2 Corinthians, it speaks about the thorn in the flesh, you know, that, that kept Paul from exalting himself. It drew him to the Lord. Suffering has a way of doing that. It also qualifies us to sympathize with others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. One of the things that suffering does for you is it allows you to be more sympathetic with those who do suffer. Like, like now I can relate to you. You know, now, now it means something when I hear that you're, you're suffering. Because I've been there. Suffering allows us to sympathize with others. It also demonstrates the blessedness of our sufficiency in God. How do we know that God's grace is sufficient if we haven't been brought to the end of ourselves? You understand that? 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 and Paul says, my, uh, he says he heard from, from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in health and wealth and prosperity. No, my, my power is perfected in your weakness. In your weakness, we find the blessedness of the sufficiency of our God. My grace is sufficient for you. Would you even know about that if you never went through suffering? Would you know about the sufficient grace of your God? It brings us into fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. We share something with Christ when we suffer. And it also develops our spiritual graces. We grow. We're sanctified in our suffering. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. <laughs> it helps us to grow. God is always using these things to make us more like Jesus Christ. He's working in all things, all things together for the good. And the good is to look like Jesus. And our God is so committed to our holiness that he'll orchestrate the things in your life to bend you towards Christ-likeness. That's what he'll do. Because he loves you. You know, we look at the afflictions that we suffer and it's just like, is this God like disciplining me, that he's angry with me? Sometimes the, the affliction comes in your life just to make you more like Christ. There's a training that goes on in suffering and affliction. He's bending you to be conformed into the will of Jesus Christ, into the image of Jesus Christ. There's something good that happens even in what we suffer. There's a refining, a strengthening, a perfecting. In the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, it says it well, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design the dross to consume, and the goal to refine. God is committed to completing the work that he began in us. We're immature and we've got a lot of work to do. That's what the word discipline refers to. The word discipline is from the word uh, paideia, relates to the uh, to, to children, immaturity. comes from the, the word paideon, which refers to, to rear or raise a child. So, so God disciplines us to raise us, to, to, to grow us, to mature us. It's everything that the Father does to bring maturity in our lives. Everything. You know, so yes, it's the, the correction, the reproof, but it's also that, 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 that kind of process that he puts us through to, to help us to mature, to help us to grow. And God handpicks these trials for us. And so this is not a sign of the Father's hatred and rejection. It actually designates us as children. He says that you're my child and I care about you. I care about you. That's why I bring these things into your life. I want you to draw close to me. I want you to mature. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't place these things into your life. And here the author cites Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, where it says, uh, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. There's a temptation in our suffering to take it too lightly. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Sometimes people face trials, difficulties, and it's just like, oh, you know, whatever. It is, it is what it is. You know, can't, can't do anything about it anyway. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to consider anything. You know, it's just life. 
But what this tells me is that there's, there's meaning in our trials. We, we shouldn't just take it lightly. We shouldn't just brush it off. It's like, what, what, is the Lord, what might the Lord be trying to teach me through this? I want to learn. I want to grow. So we're not to brush it off. Don't take it too lightly. But on the other side, don't take it too, too heavy. Don't take it too hard. And that's the other temptation. You know, one is to take it too lightly. And the other is to faint underneath it. You know, some people take trials so hard that they're ready to just give up. To faint, to grow weary, to lose heart, to ball up in a heap, to crumble under the affliction. Like, like uh, Elijah when, you know, uh, Jezebel started chasing him. In 1 Kings 19, he's like, oh, Lord, take my life. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about, Elijah? You know, first you're on top of Mount Carmel and, you know, you're just ready to swing the sword and call down fire from heaven. And now a woman chases you. And it's just like, just take my life. Just take me out. I'm tired. I'm done. Somehow that's, sometimes that's how we are, isn't it? It's just like, Lord, I just, I'm just done with it. Just, just take me home. I'm done. Both of those responses fail to see the purpose in our affliction. That the God uses these things. He pays attention to us. God's love is demonstrated even in what we suffer. Because he's committed to our holiness. And father, fatherly discipline is a sign of, of sonship. Verses 7 and 8, look at what it says. It is for discipline that you endure... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen to this. If God is not actively working in your life to produce holy character in you, if that's not happening, if God is not working in your life to produce holiness, then you don't belong to him. You're not a child of God. One of the ways that we know our justification has happened is that our sanctification is happening. And Paul lets us know in Colossians that if you've put on the new self, that you are being renewed. Something's happening in your life. You're you're, you're through that process of being sanctified. That's what's going on. And the fact that God has committed himself to produce holiness in your life, even by painful means, is a reminder that, you know what? I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Just a a real quick illustration. I know there were times when, um, you know, we had... You know, our children had friends, you know, over to the house. And uh, sometimes they'd be getting into something that they shouldn't be getting into. And uh, I would pull our kids over to discipline them, to speak to them, to correct them. And I want to do the same thing for the friends who were coming over. Why? Because my kids belong to me and those kids belong to somebody else. I'm not going to discipline somebody else's kids. <laughs> you know, that's for, for that parent to do. But I've got a responsibility with, with my own, right? What, what does that discipline actually do? It, it actually designates these as mine. These are the ones that belong to me. Fatherly discipline is actually a way that God shows us that you, you belong to me. You belong to me. And here, the persecution that they're facing, like I said, it's not an indication of rejection. It's actually a sign that they were his true children. That I'm going to work through these means, even suffering, for the purpose of of, of bringing you to maturity. That's what I'm doing in this. Fatherly discipline is for our good. For our good. Look at verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us when we respected, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Share his holiness. Earthly fathers did what seemed best to them. It wasn't always right. You know, but as, as you uh, grow up and you have kids of your own, you realize what a tough job your parents had, right? You start to respect a little bit more what they had to do, what they had to put up with, right? How much more should we respect the father of spirits, the heavenly father, who doesn't just do what he thinks is best, but he does what he, does what he knows is best, right? He does what he knows is best. God is all wise. He knows what's for our good even when we don't. He knows what's most beneficial for us. He knows what will lead us towards holiness. And even at the expense of having you misunderstand him, God will still commit himself to this sanctifying work in your life. I don't know if our children believed it or not, but I remember uh, you know, disciplining them when they were younger and... Uh, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you hear your parents say, oh, this is more painful for me than it is for you, and you didn't believe them. <laughs> I remember it being painful sometimes. 
you know, to discipline my children or say, no, you can't do that. You can't go there. You know, they asked me to, you know, can I go somewhere, Dad? And it's like, no, I'm sorry, you can't go. They, they misunderstood me plenty of times. And I remember it being hard. It's hard for me to say no. God does it for our, our best. He knows what's best for us, right? Do you respect your Father in heaven? Do you understand that he knows what's best for you, that he knows what you need, that he knows what your limitations are, that he's actually designed what you face for your benefit? And then lastly, consider your season. Consider your season. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's for a season. It's a season. You know, as parents, we're able to look further down the road than our children are and say, you know, hey, this is for a season. I'm trying to train you, instruct you to get you ready because eventually you're going to be on your own. You eventually leave the house, right? At least you hope so. <laughs> All right, eventually it happens. But this is for a season. And, and the, the, the suffering that we endure, it's also for a season. There's, there's coming a time when we won't be like these, these children, you know, there's coming a time when we'll, we'll graduate into adulthood, you know, when we reach glory. You know, now we, we speak as a child, we think as a child, we reason as a child, but there's coming another time, right? This is for a season. It's for a period of time. But while we're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem to be joyful. When we experience trials, difficulty, it is not joyful, it is painful. It's painful. And, and just as an, as an aside, you need to allow people the time to work through that. If you're counseling somebody, they're, they're going through a difficult time, you know, you don't just kind of, hey, come on, just get, get over it. You know, it's okay. All, all is well. You know, don't you trust in the sovereignty of God? We go to Baltimore Bible Church. We believe in the sovereignty of God. It's like, that's, that's not what you do, right? The Bible lets us know that there's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. And sometimes it's, it's just, it's okay to have a good cry, okay? Sometimes that's just okay. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Some translations say, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Sometimes just having a good cry makes you feel better. <laughs> and you need to allow people to, to go through that. They go through seasons in life. But there's also a season to reap if they do the heavy plowing, right? There's a season to reap. And by God's grace, we can look forward to the, 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 the peaceful fruit of righteousness that will come if we, we are trained underneath this process. If I grow through this, if, if, I'm, if I don't crumble underneath this, if I don't just take it lightly, if I'm trained by this, whatever I'm enduring, that there's something on the other end of this that's peaceful, that's righteous, that's good. And God is committed to my holiness. And I need to be committed to my holiness. And I need to endure. I need to endure. Again, Psalm 119 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And we can thank God that even in our afflictions, that God has a holy purpose in mind. And that if we're trained by it, that there's something on the other end. That word for, for train, it's the word gumnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium from. It's to exercise, to discipline the body. We're disciplining ourselves for what? We've already heard for what? It's to run the race with endurance, right? That's what he just talked about. That's what we opened up with. Run the race with endurance. And even the trials that are allowed into our life give us the strength to continue to run and to continue to endure. God has a purpose in what he's doing. And it's to perfect your faith. He who has given it to you, he who is the author of it will also perfect it. He's going to bring it all the way to completion. And sometimes that comes through some gym work. <laughs> it comes through some endurance training. And God's endurance training often involves suffering. This is part of what Hebrews is teaching us. Our trials are part of God's endurance training program for the believer. Weans us from the world, causes us to look to heaven, makes the promises of God more precious, causes us to draw close to the Lord, qualifies us to sympathize with others, demonstrates the blessedness and the sufficiency of God, brings us into closer fellowship with him through sufferings, develops our spiritual graces, 
designates us as the children of God, and it trains us to endure to the very end. This is what our our trials are doing. And God uses all of these means for my good, for his glory, and we need to thank God even for the difficulties that we endure in this life. Because if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be able to endure one of them. And they're proof of our salvation. When you stand at the end of a trial, that's a proof that you still belong to him. Do you understand that that's a gift from God? That is a gift from God. As believers, we persevere. And it's one of the glorious truths in scripture that we can give God thanks for. I love the the Lord's words to to Simon Peter when he uh, was preparing him for a trial. He's about to undergo a trial and Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan's, Satan's, uh, he knows your name and he's coming after you. And he, he wants to rip you apart, Peter. But you know what I've done? I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Do you understand that it's the Lord's sustaining grace that keeps you trusting in him? That it's his intercession right now at the right hand of the Father. It's his intercession that keeps you saved. That if it was not for the Lord interceding for you, that you would be eternally lost. You know, I love what John MacArthur said. He says, if I could lose my salvation, I'd lose it every day. (laughs) If I could, I would. If I could lose my salvation, I'd lose it. But it's God who keeps us. And that's something that we can give God thanks for. And in the midst of your celebration week, as you think about different things that you want to give God thanks for, one of the things that you can also be giving God thanks for is that he keeps you. (laughs) That he keeps you. That you're enduring to the end. And I'll end with this in in Jude 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, so much for your word. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, you would continue to instruct us through it. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us a heart of gratitude that you're the one who keeps us. Uh, That Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. that, That he brings us all the way to completion. He's the perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the end. And it's because of you that that we're saved, because of you that we're kept. It's because of you that we won't turn away. Uh, So, Father, I thank you even for the trials in life uh, that remind us of of your concern for our holiness and uh, that it draws us closer to you and that even in the midst of our trials, Lord, that we remain standing because uh, you're the one who keeps us and Christ intercedes. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.